Our scripture reading this morning is in the book of James. We're reading James chapter 1. I'll be preaching this morning on uh, James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. But so we get a picture of it in its context, we'll read the whole chapter. Reading from the ESV, ESV Bible. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother exalt in his, boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises, and with its scorching heat and withers the grass, so the flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger, that, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and all rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let me read James 1, 5-8 one more time. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Well, I confess to you this morning my own complete and utter lack of wisdom and my complete and utter reliance on the wisdom that comes from God alone. So let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, I come before you with no strength of my own, with no wisdom of my own, with nothing good but that which you have given. And Lord, we know this is true, not just for me, but this is true for each one of us. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, I can't preach this sermon. We can't hear this sermon. We can't be changed by this sermon unless you are at work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I pray that you will show us our lack of wisdom this morning, each one of us. And that you will show us, Lord, that you are the gracious God of the universe. You are our heavenly Father. And Lord, you give generously and without reproach. So Lord, help us to approach you boldly through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That you may give us the wisdom that we need to walk in this wicked world. For We ask all of these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. World markets value a commodity based on its abundance. And we say that something is dirt cheap because, let's face it, dirt is abundant. There is no shortage of dirt in the world. But if you look at diamonds, on the other hand, diamonds are extremely valuable. The way that, that a beautiful diamond sparkles and the way that, that it reflects... Hey, buddy. The way that it reflects... This, the sunlight back to us makes us want to just look at this diamond. We, we don't want to turn our eyes away from this diamond. But as beautiful as a diamond is, if the streets were paved by diamonds, they also would be dirt cheap. They would have no value. So what do you think is, is the most valuable commodity on earth? Maybe you think it's diamonds or gold or platinum or oil or Google stocks, but it's none of those things. The most valuable thing on the planet is not something that you hold in your hand. It's something that you hold in your heart and in your mind. It's wisdom. Apart from relationships with God and people, there is no more valuable thing on this earth than wisdom. And I, I can say boldly that wisdom is waning in our culture. It's waning. And you might ask, well, well, how could that possibly be when we look around and we see advances in medicine, we see advances in technology? But this is all knowledge, not wisdom. Mankind's knowledge is growing by leaps and bounds while his wisdom is disappearing. Wisdom is disappearing because mankind's knowledge of God is disappearing. Thousands of years ago, when, when men got together to make the Tower of Babel and to, to, to try to ascend to the very heavenlies, they thought that they were wise, but they were fools. In their arrogance, they were trying to approach God in their strength, out of their pride. And we know what happened. God scattered them, and confounded languages so that that sort of thing wouldn't happen again. But I think it is happening again. I think everywhere we look, we see these monuments to human achievement, 
that are really just monuments to foolishness because God no longer has a place in the hearts of these men. Because the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So who here thinks that they're wise? I really didn't think anybody was going to put their hands up there. But I would argue that the, the youngest child in this room who believes in Jesus Christ is far wiser than Stephen Hawking or, or Richard Dawkins. Stephen Hawking may be able to work out formulas that would stretch across two blackboards. And Richard Dawkins might be able to use massive words and, and seemingly win debates. But the Bible calls both of those men fools because they both deny God. They claim to be atheists, but as we know, there's really no such thing as an atheist. They're willfully ignorant and suppressing the knowledge of God in their hearts. They know. They know in their heart of hearts that there is a God, but they are trying everything that they can to try to squeeze him out. So this, the youngest child in this room who has faith in Jesus Christ is wiser than those that the world calls wise. But the fear of the Lord isn't the fullness of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is only the beginning of wisdom. What is the fullness of wisdom? Well, Paul Tripp defines wisdom as a penetrating understanding into how things actually work that leaves us with practical direction as to how we should live. Wisdom is being able to look at life from God's perspective. Wisdom is being able to look at life from God's perspective. So let me ask you this. Are you looking at life from God's perspective. Now, nobody here wanted to put their hand up and admit that, that they would think that they have wisdom, but let's face it, we all think that we're wiser than we really are. We all like to think that we're wise. And through most of life's circumstances, we tend to rely on ourselves. We don't tend to think about God, who God is. We go through life on autopilot, and not even bringing God into our decision-making processes. And that self-reliance keeps us from God. And that's where trials come in. That's where trials come in. Trials are what James has in mind here. Verses 5 to 8 really continue the same thought that, that James presented in 2 to 4, where he said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now the trials that James would have had primarily, primarily in mind were, were persecution that came as a result of being Christians. Now a couple of weeks ago at our Bible study, we actually watched a video on Google that was, was shocking. It's something that, that the images of my, in my mind just keep coming back again and again, where, where Christians in India were literally beaten to death simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, none of us here have experienced trials of that magnitude. But all of us, 
have experienced trials from one degree to another. And all of us will experience trials. He says here trials of various kinds, various types of trials and of various degrees of magnitude. We can see here that it's linked with the previous passage because he talks about, in verse 4, lacking in nothing. And then he comes back in verse 5 talking about the lack. And he's talking here a specific kind of lack, the lacking of wisdom. And all of us lack wisdom, but sometimes it's not until we face a trial that we realize just how needy of God's wisdom we really are. It's not until we face a trial that we begin to look beyond ourselves, to go beyond the day-to-day issues of life and look to God. Trials are meant to show us that we don't have the resources to be able to face whatever it is that we're experiencing. Trials are designed to bring us to an end of ourselves. They're designed to shatter our sinful self-reliance and cause us to look to the only source of real strength. They're designed by God to help us to look to him. They're designed to draw us to him. So in those times when we don't feel that we have what we need, we don't feel that we have the resources, in those times we go to God, and that's what God has planned. So-called accidents are not really accidental. They're not accidental. They come to us from the hand of a sovereign God who loves us and is supremely wise and is working together all things for his glory and for our good. Our trials are not an accident. They don't come to us from the hand of faith. They come to us from the hand of God. Satan didn't slip one under God's radar so that we, we would face a trial. They come to us from the hand of God. Of course, God is not the author of sin. But he uses sin to draw us to him. They cause us to, to rely on his strength so that we will grow in godliness. So when we face trials, we have essentially two options. It might look like it's multiple choice, but it's really only true-false. We can either go to God or we can go to somewhere we can go somewhere else. Some people try to figure it out themselves. Wrong answer. Some people try to go to secular psychologists. Wrong answer. Some people go to clairvoyance. Wrong answer. Some people go to Dr. Phil. Wrong answer. They may be wearing different clothes, but they all point to the wrong answer because they all point away from God. And our trials are meant to point us to God. So is there any area in your life right now where you are lacking wisdom? There's areas in all of our lives that we're lacking wisdom. The question is, are you conscious of it? And are you going to God, the only source of wisdom? It's not foolish to lack wisdom. It's foolish to lack wisdom without knowing that you lack wisdom. An essential aspect of wisdom is knowing just that. It's knowing that you need it. Now, maybe you don't think you need any special wisdom right now. But believe me, and listen carefully, believe me, the time is coming when you will and you will know it. 
The time is coming in your life when you will face a trial that is so severe and so difficult that you will not know what to do. Some of you are in that situation at this very moment. And I want to encourage us. I'm preaching this to myself here too. I want to encourage each one of us to set our minds on God, to steal ourselves, to go to God, because it is only Him who is able to help us in the, in the midst of that trial. So maybe, maybe life is smooth sailing for you right now. But prepare yourself. Get to know God now, the God of the Bible now, as he presents himself in the Bible now, so that you'll be prepared for when that eventuality happens. So this passage before us shows us really two key points. It shows us the character of the wisdom giver, and it shows us the character of the wisdom seeker. In verse 7, we learn about God. He is the God, He is God, the giver of wisdom. And in verses 6 to 8, we learn about two kinds of wisdom seekers: those who ask in faith and those who doubt. So, first of all, God the wisdom giver. In verse 5, we read, if anyone lacks wisdom, and we've established that each one of us lacks wisdom. It includes all of us. But like I said, knowing that you need wisdom is one thing, but knowing where to go to get it is quite another. So where do you get wisdom? Do you get it from education? Do you get it from experience? You've probably heard it said that wisdom comes through experience, especially difficult experiences. But is that true? Is that statement correct? There's no doubt that you can gain wisdom through experience, but it's not necessarily the case. What do you think that the worst experience that a person could ever go through would be? If you're a parent, you would probably say the loss of a child. And many of us here in this room have gone through the loss of a child. I was talking with Ken the other day, and many years ago, Ken and Marge lost their son and daughter-in-law as a car went off the road. They were on vacation in Nassau. The car went off the road and killed their son and daughter-in-law suddenly. Now, what's the difference between Ken and Marge and so many other people who face similar things and spiral into depression, where families are destroyed. And even in some cases, parents will commit suicide after the loss of a child. What's the difference between them and others? The difference is God. The difference is God. So as difficult as it would be to lose a child under those circumstances, I think many would probably agree that to lose your child at the hands of a killer would be even worse. And I know a man whose daughter, she was 12 years old, and she was killed by a serial killer. 
This man was, was brought up in a Christian home. His father was a missionary and a pastor. But this man didn't know Jesus. And he is now one of the most bitter and angry people that I have ever met in my life. He is angry at God. He is angry at the world because he doesn't know God. Now, thankfully, such a horrific tragedy hasn't touched anybody in our church family. But I know that by God's grace, you would be able to walk through that. Lord forbid that it would happen. But His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. So in that moment, in His strength, I trust that you won't retreat into anger and bitterness because God is at work in your heart. There's another place you could maybe go when you face a tragedy like that. Maybe some of you here would have read the book, The Shack. The Shack tells the story of Mac, a man whose daughter had been brutally killed by a serial killer four years earlier. His life was full of over overwhelming anger and pain. And in this story, Mac is given an opportunity to meet with God in order to deal with that pain. And so God invites him into this shack where his daughter's murder had actually taken place. Now, maybe this is shocking for some of you to hear, but this book actually starts out as heresy and stays heretical the whole way through. God the Father is represented by a heavy-set, matronly African-American woman named Papa. I almost shudder to even say this. This is blasphemy. God the Son is, is represented by a man of Middle Eastern descent and the Holy Spirit by a delicate Asian woman named Serehu. One by one, the author criticizes many aspects of the church and biblical doctrines. He criticizes the church by saying, you're talking about the church as this woman you're in love with. I'm pretty sure I haven't met her. She's not the place I go on Sundays. So this is, in this, this is supposedly God saying that he doesn't go to church on Sundays. He criticizes the Bible saying God's voice has been reduced to paper and even that paper had to be moderated and deciphered by the proper authorities and intellects. He's condemning the Bible as something that is only to be understood by intellects? Young children in this church are able to understand the deep things of God's word because his Holy Spirit is active in their hearts. God's word is simple to understand if you take the time to study it and you're reliant on God's word. Clear biblical doctrines such as God's holy, holiness and justly punishing sin is also condemned where, where Papa says, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment, devouring from the inside. It's not my purpose to punish sin. It's my joy to cure it. This is blasphemy. This is directly the opposite of what God's word teaches about God's punishment of sin. And he also 
raises the question of whether Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. He says, those who love me come from every stream that exists. They were Buddhists or Mormons or Baptists or or Muslims or Democrats or Republicans, many who don't vote and many who are not part of any Sunday morning religious institutions. Now listen to this Amazon reader review of the shack. This person wrote, Never will I look at the Trinity the same way again. I have entered the shack, and I will never be the same. And this one, Honestly, I don't think that there is a book other than the Bible itself that has influenced the dimension of my love for the Father, Jesus, and Serehu. He even calls the Holy Spirit Serehu. So the visual imagery that the, that the author has been able to convey through the eyes of Mac will forever impact my visions of my Trinitarian guardians. Brothers and sisters, this should terrify you. People are being influenced by this work of fiction and setting it alongside God's word in order to define who God is. People are being deceived into a false notion of God, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth, not according to some heretical work of fiction. So where are you going to go? Where are you going to go when you face a tragedy? It's a question we're all going to face. We're all going to face it at some point in our lives. You're going to face difficult trials. Where are you going to go to get the wisdom that you need? Are you going to go to bitterness and anger? Are you going to go to the shack? Or are you going to go to God? We all need wisdom, and we all need to go to God in order to get it. We all need to ask God. King Solomon has been referred to as the wisest man who ever walked the planet. Why? Because he asked God for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom. But the wisest thing that Solomon ever did was to go to God for wisdom. Do you see that? He was actually wise before he even asked God for wisdom. In 1 Kings 3.5, when Solomon was newly crowned, the Lord appeared to him and asked what he wanted. Solomon responded that, that the Lord had shown steadfast love to his father, King David, but that he himself was a little child and that he was unable to govern such a great people. So he asked the Lord in verse 9 for an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. It was the wisest thing that he ever did. And the Lord was pleased with Solomon's request because Solomon had not asked for vengeance on his enemies. He had not asked for long life. He had not asked for fame. He had not asked for wealth. He had asked God for wisdom. And so the Lord said in verse 12, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has ever been before, and none like you shall arise after you. The Lord also gave us riches and honor beyond all his contemporaries. The Lord gave him wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of, breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people in the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And 439, he was wiser than all other men. This is the kind of God that we serve. This is a God who gives generously. Look at the way that he poured out wisdom on Solomon. 
Okay, nobody here is going to be referred to as the wisest of all men or the wisest of all women. But we're not called to lead nations either. We're called to operate with wisdom in the spheres in which God has placed us. So where are you called to operate in wisdom? The leaders of this church are called to operate in wisdom as we lead this church in the wisdom that God provides. Husbands, you are called to lead your wives and children. Older men, you are called to train younger men. Older women, you are called to lead the younger women and train them to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands. Employees, you are called to work with all diligence, leading by example in the workplace. So how can you know, how can you know and say and do what you're supposed to do in your sphere of influence, in the wisdom that the Lord provides? As you rely on him to walk wisely in the world, he is faithful and he will give you the wisdom that you need and not like some miser. He will give it abundantly beyond what you could imagine. And I'm sure for those of you here that have walked with Christ through trials, that this is your testimony. That when you experience the trials of life, things that before they had happened, you wondered that you could ever live through them. Maybe in some cases, things so horrible that you couldn't have even imagined that you would live through it but you can testify to the way that God was faithful and generously gave you everything that you needed to walk through that trial. But God also gives without reproach. So when you realize that you need wisdom and you go to God for it, go, he, he go asking for help, he, he doesn't mock you. He doesn't shake his head and say, that foolish child... He's your Father in heaven. He gladly and joyfully gives you that wisdom. He pours out his wisdom on you. And here, it's very helpful. Keep this in mind to remember that God is your heavenly Father. He is not only a transcendent God. He is your heavenly Father. He's your Father. And he loves you so much that he sent his only begotten Son to die for your sins. Now that's a loving father. That's a loving father. He delights in giving his children good gifts. In James 1.17 we read, Every good gift and every perfect gift is above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So God isn't like a sinful father who gets too busy and lets his priorities get out of whack. He's not like a father who gets moody after a tough day at the office. He's your loving, heavenly Father. Now, it's very likely that when, when James wrote this, he had, had Jesus' teaching in mind from, from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, where Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? 
So God is our heavenly Father who delights in giving good gifts to those who ask him. But now let's turn for a moment to look at the character of the wisdom seeker. You see this here in verses 6 to 8. First of all, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. Now this verse is often misinterpreted. It's often used in churches that teach the, the prosperity doctrine, the doctrine that says that, that wealth, and, uh, wealth and health are a sign of God's blessing in your life. And these churches teach that if you are in ill health or financial lack, that the issue is that you don't have enough faith. So these churches actually teach faith in faith. But our faith is not in faith. Our faith is not in, in anything that is in us. Our faith is in something that is beyond us because our faith is actually in not a something, our faith is in a someone, as we'll see. We need to remember here that the context of, of James, that the, the main theme that is running through James is the heart of true faith. James is revealing here the difference between true faith and false faith. And what James is saying here is that if you lack true faith, you lack a knowledge of God. Let me say that again. If you lack true faith, you lack a knowledge of God. In fact, to the, the degree to which you lack faith is also the degree to which you don't know God. And at one extreme is the people who do not know God at all. There are people who claim they know God but really don't know him. They have not been born again. They are still dead in their sins and trespasses. But we all lack faith from time to time, don't we? Sometimes our faith wavers and it shakes a little bit. But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, his spirit is in you. Faith is fruit of the Holy Spirit. He will give you the faith that you need in order to ask him for what you need. He will give you the faith that you need in order to ask wisdom. And let those times of wavering be opportunities to meditate on the character of God and to run to him and let your faith grow. Just like a tree grows strong when the wind blows on it and it digs its roots down deep, dig your roots down deep into God, into the knowledge of who he is as he reveals himself in his word. So without doubting that God is really generous and that he will give without, without reproach, we need to ask God for what we need. What we need. True faith trusts. False faith doubts. In fact, Doubting faith is really an oxymoron. The two words don't go together like, like jumbo shrimp or, or um, military intelligence or act naturally. Those words don't go together. There's really no such thing as doubting faith. The two are actually opposites. So when we go to God, we are actually trusting that he is who he says he is. We're trusting that, that he will will give us generously. And that's the type of person that goes to God. That's the, the type of person that trusts in God, someone who really knows who he is. In Mark eleven twenty four, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. 
Now, Jesus wasn't giving a blank check here. He wasn't saying that you could ask for, for a, a Lamborghini or a, a, a mansion on the top of Dilworth Mountain and that, and that God would be obligated to give it because you asked for it. Several times throughout John's gospel, John quotes Jesus as saying, ask in my name. Now, what does it mean here to ask in Jesus' name? Now, Jesus' name is not some, some empty phrase or magic words that we, that we say at the end of our prayer to make God answer our prayers. When we ask in Jesus' name, we're actually saying something profound. When we ask in Jesus' name, we are saying that we are going to God through Jesus Christ. Because we know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that he is the only way to the Father. So we're asking in faith in Jesus Christ. And we're also asking it in submission to his will. 1 John 5.14 clarifies, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. According to his will. So we realize that God knows better than we do. And yes, we can ask God to deliver us out of our trial. But don't demand that of God. Because as I said a couple of weeks ago, God never promised to deliver us out of our trials. He promised to deliver us through our trials. So if you make escaping a trial or deliverance from a trial your goal, you will be disappointed. Because you are going to face trials from which you will not be delivered. Sickness, financial troubles, the death of a loved one, your death. These are trials from which God has never promised to deliver you, but he has promised to deliver you through, through those trials. So we've already established that God is generous and he gives to all without reproach, but the person who asks without faith must not suppose, in verse 5, that he receive anything from the Lord. He won't receive anything from the Lord because at the extreme, he just doesn't know the Lord. He's not saved. Now, James presents a, to us a vivid simile describing the one who, who acts within doubt, the one who does, doesn't act in faith. He calls him like a wave of the sea that is, is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, I don't know if you've ever been out at sea when the sea was particularly rough, but it's not fun, especially if you get seasick. And as you're in a boat, well, hopefully you're in a boat in a rough sea, but the boat will, will bob up and down. And there's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Just one minute you're up at the top on a crest of a wave, and then you're down in a trough, and then you're up again, then you're down again, and your stomach is churning, and you really, it's just, it's, it's a horrible experience. But he's not talking primarily about here who has occasional doubts. Most people, even the most faithful Christians, have occasional doubts. All of us, from time to time, take a cruise on the sea of doubt. But James is talking primarily here about those who live on the sea of doubt. Their lives are characterized by it. Even Abraham, who is one of the, the key individuals in, in the Hebrews' hall of faith, struggled with doubt, didn't he? He doubted that the Lord would, would protect him and Sarah, so he lied to Pharaoh. 
He doubted that God would miraculously open Sarah's womb, so he went to Hagar. But Abraham was, overall, a man of faith. He was characterized by faith. And many of the people here, I would say, are characterized by faith. Now, you might be a faithful Christian, but again, it's, it's going to God in the midst of those doubts is the only way that you're going to be able to get through when the sea is roughest. We need to preach faith to ourselves, especially in the midst of difficult trials. In verse 8, James further describes this individual. He says, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, James is actually the one who, who coined this phrase, double-minded. It wasn't found in, in any ancient literature until this book. In verse 8, he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, now, the word literally means to be two-souled, to be two-souled. The double-minded man is not only unstable, he is also impure. Now, the concept of double-mindedness, I believe, finds its roots in the Shema, which is, which is Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4 and following, where we read, The Lord our God, he is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. So because the Lord is one, we are to be single-minded, one-minded, not double-minded. Now, Jesus referred to this as the first half of the great commandment. And remember that James was, was Jesus' brother, so he would have very likely had this very thing in mind when he said it. The double-minded man is unstable because he lives on the sea of doubt. But we, brother Christians and sisters... We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure when the billows roll, anchored to the rock that cannot move, grounded firm and deep in what? Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Faith anchors us to the rock of Christ Jesus. If you remember several months ago, we, we, we looked at in the Sermon of the Mount on on the man, the foolish man who built his house on sand. And the storm came, and his house was washed away, but the wise man built his house on the rock. And when the storms came, his house stood firm. The same storm hit the foolish man and hit the wise man. The difference was that the wise man had his faith grounded on the rock. So what are you going to do when the storm comes? What are you going to do when the trial happens? Earlier I referred to Paul Tripp's definition of wisdom as being able to look at life from God's perspective. So by God's grace, when that trial happens, and it will, step out of the circumstance and go to God in prayer looking to his word, looking to his word in, the, in, the, in faith, trusting that God will give you the wisdom that you need. Allow that trial to do what James said in verse 4, to have its perfect work, that you may be full and complete, lacking in nothing. Look for God's hand in it. Commit to trusting in his sovereignty and his love and his wisdom, knowing that he will give you what you need. 
Paul Tripp goes on to explain that as believers, we don't believe that wisdom is primarily a theology or a set of answers. We believe that wisdom is first and foremost a person. Wisdom is found in Jesus Christ. He is wisdom personified because he represents everything that is wise, everything that is good, everything that is true, everything that is lovely, everything that is holy. It's found in Jesus Christ. So when you're brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ, when you understand the cross, when you have gone to the cross for your forgiveness, when you're taking up your cross and following him, then you are coming to an end of yourself and you are turning to the only one who is able to help you in the midst of a trial. So wisdom is not known by experience. Wisdom is known by relationship. Our faith is not in faith itself. Our faith is not in anything in us. Our faith is in a person. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. True faith acts for wisdom without doubting. Without doubting the character of God, because you know, you know God's love because he sent his son to die for your sins. You won't find wisdom in bitterness. You won't find wisdom in anger. You won't find wisdom in the shack. You can only find wisdom in the cross. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to come to an end of ourselves. Lord, because when we come to an end of ourselves, that's when we come to you. I pray that you will help each one of us to come to you, not only in trials, but Lord, in all of life. Lord, that we would be working now to dig down deep into you, to ground ourselves now in gospel truths so when the storms of life come, we will run to you immediately. We will not get battered and broken, but Lord, we will come to you, our loving Heavenly Father, and you will give us your peace that passes all understanding, that you will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We ask it all in his name. Amen. <laughs> you know, the funniest thing.